Well, <clears throat> I wonder. Um, I wonder what brings you the most comfort in your daily life. Now, now you know what we're supposed to say. We're supposed to say Jesus. We're supposed to talk about our salvation or our standing in Him. In fact, um, the first question of one of the most foundational documents ever written outside of the Bible itself for the Christian church, the, the Heidelberg Catechism, the first question is this, what is our only comfort in life and death? And this is the answer, really this is the complete answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by His Holy Spirit, He also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for Him. But I would dare say that probably most of us have not memorized that statement. That's what a catechism is, by the way. It's for memorizing sort of short uh, doctrinal statements of, of truth. Yet in most arenas of Christianity, especially non-denominational Christianity like us, we've abandoned catechizing our children and, and prefer to memorize other things, like the latest Christian pop song, for example. But set that aside, and let me wonder again... What brings you the most comfort in your regular daily life? Really. What really brings you the most comfort? Is it your paycheck? Is it the safety and, and solitude of your own home? Is it the time that you spend away from home? Is it a person? Do you find the most comfort in your regular daily life with a specific person? Your husband, your, your wife, or, or maybe a child? Or is it the time that you spend away from certain people? Maybe you're uncomfortable with your spouse. Is it food? Do you seek comfort in food? Do you seek comfort in your phone or tablet or laptop? Do you seek comfort in your regular daily life with zoning out and just scrolling? I wonder what brings you the most comfort in your regular daily life. The Puritan Thomas Watson, in his work, A Body of Divinity, he wrote this. He says, Scripture is a sovereign cordial in all distresses. A cordial there means that which revives, cheers, or invigorates us. Scripture is a sovereign cordial in all distresses. He says, what are the promises but the water of life to renew fainting spirits? Is it sin that troubles? Here is a scripture cordial. Psalm 65, verse 5, iniquities prevail against me. As for our transgressions, thou shalt purge them away. 
Or, is it, or as it is in the Hebrew, thou shalt cover them, Watson says. Do outward afflictions disquiet thee? Here's a scripture cordial. Psalm 91, verse 15, I will be with him in trouble, not only to behold, but to uphold. Thus, as in the ark, manna was laid up, so promises are laid up in the ark of Scripture, Watson says. In other words, it is in the Scriptures that we should find the most comfort in our regular daily life. My guess is, though, knowing especially my own stubborn heart, is that it isn't, that isn't true for most of us. My guess is that many of us are going through life just looking for that next moment of comfort. But if you're a Christian, then you are not your own, but you belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And that should be where we find our most true comfort. This is the promise that he gives here in today's passage in John chapter 14. Let me read, turn there if you're not already there. John 14, I'm going to read verses just 18 to 24. John 14, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And he will come to him and make, we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my word, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Let's just stop and pray again. Lord, I pray that we would find comfort in the promises of Christ here, even in this chapter, in these few verses. That we would find comfort today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This entire upper room discourse here, and John really kind of begins in chapter 13, but 14, 15, 16, and and 17, which is his high priestly prayer, we often call it. This entire upper room discourse or teaching is Jesus working at preparing his disciples for that time when he will be leaving them. And this whole scene has, it, it has kind of near and far implications. He's going to be leaving them the next day. He's going to die on the cross the next day. But he will soon return when he is resurrected. But then he's going to be leaving them again in about a month and a half when he ascends to the Father's right hand. So throughout this, we can see where he is referring to the near, tomorrow, Sunday, when I come back, when I resurrect... But it also, return, it also refers to the far, as in when I go to the Father's right hand, and, and even he will refer to when I return. That's what we mean by near and far. This is about Friday to Sunday, and it's about next month for them. 
And in reality, this is about, really for them and for us, this time between the advents. This time between his first coming and his second, his second coming. And as we have seen, really just in these first few dozen verses here in the, um, of chapter 14, this teaching is filled with promises. And we know, as the Apostle Paul wrote to the, to the Corinthians, Paul says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. All the promises of God find their completion and their fulfillment in Christ. And so we can say Amen to the glory of God. And something to remember especially when we're looking for something to provide that, uh, that kind of regular daily comfort, something to remember is that God's promises are powerful. Even his enemies know this. Even God's enemies or the enemies of God's people know how powerful God's promises are. So we have been reading through 1 Samuel um, during our time of the public reading of Scripture. And last week, last Sunday, we read chapter 6. Let me just read a portion of that. Just flip back there for a second. 1 Samuel chapter 6. I want to read a portion of that again so that you can be reminded of how God's enemies understood the power of God's promises. I'm just going to read uh, 1 through 9. So 1 Samuel 6, verses 1 to 9. Verse 1 The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send to its place. And they said, If you send away the ark of God, uh, of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return to him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed. And it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that should be given to him? And they answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the Lord of the Philistines. For the same plague was uh, on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice uh, that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand off you and your God and your land. Now listen to this, verse 6. This is the Philistines. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a a new cart and uh, two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the cart of the Lord and place it on the cart and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in uh, in a box on its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on uh, the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck it to us. It is uh, what has happened to us by coincidence. So even the Philistines, 
Even the Philistines understood the power of God's promises to deliver his people from their slavery in Egypt. They had seen it. They had heard of it. This happened generations earlier. And they had heard of this. They'd heard the accounts. They saw what had happened to Pharaoh. They saw God's power. Even God's enemies know of his promises and his power, and they fear him. They fear him. Should we forget his promises? Should we disregard the the Old Testament as out of of date and, and so prehistoric that it has no value for us? Some do, but may it never be of us. So think about this. There are... There are certain symbols and ceremonies that we can see throughout the scriptures that are designed to remind God's people of his faithfulness to his promises. We sing the song in the second verse, I think it's the second verse, says, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I've come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the fold of God. He, to rescue me from danger, interposed his precious blood. Unfortunately, because of Charles Dickens, when we sing that classic hymn, we only think of Scrooge, right? Here I raise my Ebenezer. And so we change that line. But Ebenezer is an important word and concept. Did you catch it from today's reading in 1 Samuel chapter 7? It's in verse 12, which says this, Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. Ebenezer means, the word means, stone of help. It's like a statue or a pillar of stones designed to remind God's people of God's faithfulness and God's provision. Till now, the Lord has helped us. So think of Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell all of His wondrous works. Glory in His holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His presence continually. Remember the wondrous works that He has done. His miracles and the judgments He uttered. O offspring of Abraham, His servant. Children of Jacob, His chosen ones. And then the psalmist in in that psalm proceeds to proclaim, to call to memory God's covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He reminds them of God's provision for them as they faced a a famine in in Canaan. And he he tells how God provided for them as he brought them down to to Egypt. And then how he raised Moses up to, to lead them out of their slavery and to the mountain where they could worship him. That's just Psalm 105. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. Think of the Ark of the Covenant. We're reading about it there in 1 Samuel. Think of the tabernacle and all of its furniture. All of these things are designed to remind God's people of his fulfilled promises. They're designed to remind God's people of his covenant faithfulness. And all of it pointed to the ultimate Ebenezer, 
Do this in remembrance of me. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. The promises of Christ should be held on to, should be clung to, like a, like a drowning man hangs on to a life preserver. And this passage today, um, in this, Jesus kind of lobs three more promises to his troubled disciples. So we're back in John 14. Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus has said. And here in these verses, 18 to 24, he gives them three more promises. Let me give you all three, and then we'll go through each one. First promise is his care continues. His care continues. His life continues. And then his love continues. His care continues. His life continues. And his love continues. So let's look at each of them. His care continues. Look again at verse 18. This is a verse that we would all do well to have memorized. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. As he prepared to leave them, he brings up this image that is graphic. An image that is kind of heartrending to so many, right? Literally, he says, I will not leave you fatherless. I will not leave you orphans. Even in modern times, Orphans are perhaps the most destitute of all people, left on their own, right? They are without providers, they are without protectors, and they are without hope. Paul reminds the Ephesians that as Gentiles, as those outside of the the covenant promises made to Israel, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 11 and 12, he, he writes this, he says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Jesus says, I will not leave you like that. I will not leave you as orphans. Later this very night, um, those whom he is, he is assuring here, these 11 men, later this very night, they left him. When he was arrested, these men left him alone. Matthew 26, verses 55 and 56 says this, At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against us as a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then it, and Matthew puts this little sentence on there after that. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. They ran away, forsaking him. Jesus knows what it's like to be so completely alone. 
But not just that they weren't there when he needed them. One of them actually left earlier in the night in order to betray him. And Jesus had said of Judas, he said this, The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus had a friend who ripped him off, betrayed him, and then killed himself. He had another friend, whose name was Simon Peter, who denied him. Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. But even worse was the ultimate moment of loneliness. Matthew records it in chapter 27, verses 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lima sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus here in John 14 is about to be betrayed denied and forsaken. He is about to take upon himself the hatred of the world and he is about to drink of the cup of the wrath of God and here he is concerned for his own. He knew that they would feel forsaken after he died. He knew that they would feel like helpless orphans and yet he promises that his care for them will continue. Yes, he's going to return to the Father's side. But his departure is not as bad as they think because his departure is not total and it's not final. So here's how it is not total. Though he will soon no longer walk and talk with them, um, he's not leaving them without comfort. There's a little bit of a play on words here because the word translated orphans Um, It technically means comfortless or fatherless. In fact, I think the King James uses the word comfortless instead of orphans there. And do you remember who the paraclete is, the the another helper uh, from up in verse uh, 16? It's another comforter. Sometimes that is the role of the Spirit, a helper, a comforter, an advocate. But also... Though his disciples are sometimes called little children, and and so John himself will do this later through his epistles, he will call, he will refer to his church, to those whom he loves as little children over and over again. Though Jesus' disciples are sometimes called little children, and in fact Jesus will even say, let the little children come to me, again another play on words, Though they will soon feel like orphans, the Father has adopted them as sons. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. His Father is their Father. And he's an everlasting Father. 
and the Father and the Son will be sending another helper to be with them forever. So it is not total, but it's also not final. So here's how it's not final. He says there, I will come to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, this statement has been debated, um, but he will come to them in three ways. He will come to them at, at his resurrection. He will come to them in the sending of his spirit, and he will come to them in his return, his second coming. And theologians will argue about which one he is referring to here, but regardless, we can take comfort in all of them, in each of them. So we could look at it this way. He says to them, I will come to you quickly upon my resurrection. I'll be right back. Or, I will come to you in power when my Holy Spirit descends on you at Pentecost and you will be my witnesses. Or in the third sense, I will come to you at the end of time and bid you to enter into your rest. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Well done, good and faithful servant. Matthew Henry, in his commentary, he says this, He says, the consideration of Christ's coming saves us from being comfortless in his removals from us. For if he depart for a season, it is that we may receive him forever. Let us moderate our grief. The Lord is at hand. I love that. Let us moderate our grief. The Lord is at hand. His care for us continues. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. But then also his life continues. Pick it up in verse 19. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Now, like I mentioned earlier, many promises and prophecies have that kind of near and far element. So for the eleven, for these men sitting here at the table with him, This promise is going to be fulfilled in in just a couple of days. Remember, this is on a Thursday evening that they're having this last supper. Um, And he will be crucified and die on Friday. But in just a little while, just early Sunday morning, he will rise from the dead. The world will not see him. See, after his resurrection, his ministry wasn't really a public ministry. He didn't go around preaching in the synagogues and and healing whoever came into contact with him. Peter says this in in a sermon recorded in Acts chapter 10. So Peter is preaching here, and in verses 40 and 41 he says, But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. The Apostle Paul goes into a little bit more detail in 1 Corinthians 15. It really, really should read and meditate on all of that chapter. But verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and He appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. In other words, after his resurrection, the world saw him no more. 
He appeared to the apostles and brothers. He appeared, appeared to, to Christians, at least certain Christians. But he spent the bulk of his time with his disciples. And so you can read about those times at the end, really, of each of the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And at the very beginning of Acts, those first few verses in chapter 1. But this promise is not only for them. It's also for those who would believe in him. They will have communion with him forever. And while we may not physically see him, we have been given the Holy Spirit as a sign and seal of our salvation to be with us forever. But you will see me, Jesus says. At this point, uh, turn over to Second Peter, uh, Peter chapter 3. But you will see me, Jesus has said. Just, just listen to chapter 3 of Second Peter. I'm not going to read the... Oh, maybe I will. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. You know he's talking about the time of Noah. Verse 7, But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done on it will be exposed." Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote about you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do with the other scriptures." 
You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. But you will see me, Jesus says. I think you can see there in Second Peter chapter 3, he's referring to the coming judgment. He takes them back and, and reminds them of the judgment during the time of Noah and the judgment that is being stored or kept until that day. But God is patient, and that's why he hasn't returned yet. This promise here in John 14 was for the 11, was for the disciples, but it's also a promise for us. We will see him because he lives. Because he lives, he says. Look at this again. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Because he lives. They are grieved. The disciples are grieved because he has been telling them here and throughout this that he would soon be leaving them. But we should remember, as we consider this, we should remember that the, the smell of death is in the room. Let me walk you through a few verses in Mark. These are some of the things that have happened, some of the things that Jesus has said over the course of his ministry, especially in the final year. Things that the disciples witnessed and were involved in. So just, just listen to this. Mark chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 says this, And he began to teach them, he, Jesus, began to teach the disciples that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again, he said this plainly. He has said this all the way back in Mark chapter 8. In chapter 9, verses 30 and 32, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, He did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will arise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Again, in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34, and uh, taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will arise. And then in Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 25, This was just earlier, this same evening, as John 14. As they were eating, so just a a little bit earlier, maybe, maybe 30 minutes earlier, he took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to him and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they drank of it. And he said to them, This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Now look at the beginning of this chapter. 
Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus has told them plainly that he would be leaving them, that he would be returning to the Father, that he would be going to the Father's house. Could they be connecting the dots finally? Is that why their hearts are troubled as they're seeing this played out? As he takes and pours out some wine and said, this is my blood of the covenant. Well, regardless of the answer to whether or not they really put all this stuff together, he heads it off at the pass and he says, because I live, you also will live. Because I live, you also will live. Because of Jesus' resurrection, we, his disciples, also live. This statement is the core of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the promise of the gospel. Listen to, go back to Ezekiel thirty six twenty six, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Because I live, you live. Romans chapter 6, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. We could easily keep going with this. 1 Corinthians 15, Ephesians chapter 2. Because he lives, we also live. Without this truth, we of all people are most to be pitied, Paul says. That's what Paul tells the Corinthians. The life of Christians is bound up in the life of Christ. As surely and as long as he lives, those who are united with him will live also. Our life is hidden with Christ. That's Colossians 3.3. But not only in spirit, in the flesh too. Listen to the promises from Isaiah chapter 25. Just listen to this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. 
And it shall be on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And then in chapter 26 of Isaiah, verse 19 says, Your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. In that day, because he lives, we will continue to see him forever. Look at verse 20. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. In that day, when the Spirit is poured out, His disciples will see more clearly. They will know and understand the relationship of the Father and the Son. They will understand the relationship of the Father and the Son and the church, His people. And we will understand, for example, Romans 6, 5. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. His care continues, his life continues, and thirdly, his love continues. His love continues. Pick it up in verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you would manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Notice notice who he is making this promise to. He's making this promise to those who keep his commandments. Alexander McLaren Um, who's an old English Baptist preacher, he said this. He said, there are two motives for keeping commandments. One, because they're commanded. And two, because we love him that commanded. The one is slavery and the other is liberty. The one is like the Arctic regions, cold and barren. The other is like tropical lands full of warmth and sunshine, glorious and glad fertility. We long for those tropical lands, don't we? This has been a pretty easy winter, right? But we still long for those tropical lands because we've been living in the cold winter, not just of February and wherever we are, Ohio, but because we've been living in this world. Real and living Christianity always involves a free and happy obedience out of love for Jesus. But Jesus here, he isn't merely just kind of repeating his teachings on obedience. He's already done this. Rather, what he is doing is showing that that by this kind of loving obedience, his people are able to come to know him better. And he gives a couple of reasons for this. And reason number one is that an obedient life pleases our Heavenly Father. That's verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. This does not mean that we have to earn his love. 
In fact, his love precedes our love for him. We love because he first loved us. John explains that in 1 John. As a good father, he loves those who obey him out of their love for him. And they love him because he first loved them. Can you see that cycle? God is the source of this. And then reason number two, that obedience brings an increased knowledge of Jesus. It's seen in the second part of this promise. It's really the end of verse 21 where he says, and manifest myself to him. And manifest myself to him. And again, this promise has near and far elements. So the word manifest here, it means a vivid display of divine glory. And by now, you remember that the disciples will see the risen Christ in just a couple of days. And once they see him, they will begin to understand. But in the far off sense, and this is Judas not Iscariot's question in verse 22. Look, look at Jesus' answer. Judas will ask him, how in the world can you manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And he says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him and he will come to, we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the, father, uh, the words that you hear are not mine, but the father's who sent me. Jesus is saying that he will respond to our obedience by making himself increasingly real to us. He won't do this bodily. Jesus has ascended to the Father's side. Instead, Christ will make himself real to us and manifest his glory in his word, in the Bible, through the Holy Spirit's witness to Scripture in the hearts of those who love and obey Jesus. The Bible, the Scriptures, God's word is no mere book. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, complete, equipped for every good work. This is why he stresses his word in these verses. Can you see how many times? So first of all, he uses the word love several times. But he also uses the word word three or four times in this. We will come to him and we will make our home with him. This is Romans 8 verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. This is the promise of the indwelling Spirit. When Jesus says, and we will come to him and make our home with him. In these verses, Jesus is connecting the Word of God with the Trinity, with the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Spirit. And really, he's connecting that with the people of God. Remember, the, the Pharisees, they denied that Jesus was one with the Father. They had no problem with God. They had no problem, really, even with obedience to God's word, to his law. But Jesus is connecting all of these things with his disciples. And so here is what he is saying. 
A Christian, a believer, a saint, a child of God is one who is loved by God, loves Jesus as evidenced by his or her obedience to the words or commands of Jesus and receives the promised paraclete, helper, the Spirit. And so for us as Christians, for those of you in here who have trusted in Christ for salvation, remember and find comfort in these three promises. His care continues, his life continues, and his love continues. And so what is our only comfort in life and death? In what this afternoon on the Lord's Day will you go home and find comfort in? Will you find comfort in the truth that you are not your own, but you belong body and soul both in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? Or will you find comfort in something that this world has to offer? Remember these three promises that his care continues, that his life continues, and his love continues. And because he lives we also will live. Our only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong with both body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. It's easy, Lord, to find comfort in the things that we can feel, touch, the people that we're with, the places that we go, It's easy to find comfort in the food that we eat or the TV that we watch or our jobs, our paychecks. It's easy to find comfort in these worldly things, things of the earth. Father, help us to think on the things that are of God, to find our comfort in the truth that for those who have trusted in Christ, we are not our own but that we belong both body and soul, both in life and in death, to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, whose care continues, whose life continues, and whose love continues. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.